This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is March 28th. Uh, right now, 10 years up slightly, sitting around 3.56. S&P's down a little bit, but we're right in the middle of the day. Um, so right now, the market's up about 3.5% year-to-date. It's been a little bit of volatile week following a lot of these uh, bank, you know, bank activity. Uh, Tim, let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the market's up three and a half percent, but that doesn't tell you how much variance there has been within the market. Small caps have really been terrible. Small caps have been kind of left for dead. And all of the performance is concentrated in the super liquid top of the S&P kind of the fang extended uh, in technology area. Not much else is working uh, outside of that. You know, the market has really taken this in stride, the the, the regional bank crisis. Uh, we're, we've basically gone sideways, you know, kind of violently sideways since mm -hmm. uh, uh, Silvergate and, and Silicon Valley and uh, Signature, uh, because the Fed has come in, the Treasury has come in and rescued everybody. And, and what does the market love more than being reassured that the that there's always a Fed put, that there's always the assurance uh, from the Fed? But ultimately, we have to look at what the implications are going to be longer term. And, you know, fewer deposits, uh, as deposits go down, um, uh, you get fewer loans. And fewer loans means less credit and less financing, and that means a slower economic growth. So to some degree, uh, I do agree with those who have made the argument that uh, this has accelerated uh, the Fed's job in tightening financial conditions. And I, every week that we talk, uh, we talk about the senior loan officer surveys, and we haven't seen one yet post uh, all of this news. And you have to assume that loan demand gets tighter, uh, spreads get wider, and credit gets tighter. So when you have all of those factors and you already had all of those factors, you get a recession. So it's just another one of those indicators besides the curve inversion, besides liquidity measures, uh, despite uh, 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 ISM new orders, all of those things that people have been citing to say when this happens, you get a recession. Well, here's another one. Now, next week and the next couple of weeks, we turn to earnings. Uh, we're already in a uh, kind of blackout where companies aren't buying back stocks. And, you know, like every quarter, most companies will beat uh, the headline numbers. What's, what's going to matter is the guide. And we are right around where last 12 month and next 12 month is about the same uh, for the S&P. And I think that that goes negative. I think you continue to see guide downs. Uh, especially in, well, across the board, but you're going to see it with financials, you're going to see it in industrials, you're going to see it in consumer. Um, and, and, I, and I think we're on our way to an earnings number that is closer to 200 from kind of a 215 type number last year. And if that's the number, we're, we're close to 19 to 20 times um, earnings uh, on the S&P. And as we go into, potentially go into a recession, uh, that doesn't strike me as a, an area where the market bottoms out. No, but it's, it, the sentiment numbers have been also interesting, right? I mean, we have the low, strongest pessimism really since 
20 years and I'm looking at, you know, equity put to call ratio, for example, is below. Um, it's kind of by extremes that, you know, we're in 2010, 2011. Um, and normally this would show when sentiment's that low that the S&P would be up 15% on average over 12 months, right? Um, but we're just not seeing that yet, despite how pessimistic yeah. the market is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's not a lot of strategists out there making the soft landing call anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. very hard to get there. Everybody's looking at the same data. Uh, you had a tremendous amount of stimulus, and now the stimulus is being taken away. You've gone from ZERP and PPP to really high cost of capital. The average used car loan right now is over 10%. Like that is going to have a very significant impact on whether or not you can buy a car. So I just, I, I get it. Everybody wants to be a contrarian in this business. I don't wanna sit here and be stuck right in the middle of the consensus of where other strategists mm -hmm. and economists are, but the data kind of tells you what it's telling you. And I follow the fundamentals. I follow what I think your earnings trends are gonna be and what I think the growth in the economy is gonna be. Last week, um, Janet Yellen, you know, was testifying about the banks and then her comments had people kind of caught off guard in terms of bailing out smaller credit unions when we're in light of, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and everything. Uh, despite her new reassurances, there's not much she can do outside Congress. I mean, she's got an emergency systematic risk exception. But apart mm -hmm. from that, Congress has to set the FDIC insurance limit. Uh, it was set at 250 in 2010 under Dodd-Frank, and just like the minimum wage, it hasn't been raised since. So, I mean, there's how do you actually convince depositors that they're safe when you can't do anything without an act of Congress, which is just increasingly difficult to do anything? But yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. And I, and I think that's why Yellen has really struggled when she, you know, we talked about it, I think, last week, her testimony and her questioning from James Lankford, where he basically said, so get let me get this straight. My depositors at a small bank in Oklahoma don't have the same protection as a depositor at JP Morgan. Oh, and by the way, my depositors are paying for the extraordinary programs that are being used to bail out those depositors. So I agree that <clears throat> there needs to be, because the, the problem we have is you continue to have deposit flows out of small banks, both into money markets and into larger banks. And I don't think that ultimately we want that concentration. Unfortunately, when you look at it and you say, well, Congress has some obvious solutions here uh, we don't have we we don't have a, a functional Congress, unfortunately. Uh, so I, I think there's very little odds that you get some kind of bi bipartisan framework uh, that can work. I mean, we're always in election season, uh, and yeah. it just seems unlikely that you're going to get anything through um, that would really affect with FDIC. So I think that the Treasury will have to use these other extraordinary uh, measures. And at least to this point, they don't seem to be um, assuaging fears and stopping the deposit outflow. Let's talk a little bit about your former employer, uh, Deutsche Bank. Um, you know, they've underwent a multi-million dollar euro restructuring in recent years, aimed at reducing costs and improving profitability. But with a bunch of credit default swaps going on, there was, yeah. uh, you know, there was yeah. a big sell-off last week. So let's talk about that. Yeah. 
So uh, I wrote an essay about it. It was called Don't Borrow Trouble. I said we got a lot of issues in the U.S. economy. Um, um, the cocos of European banks probably aren't going to be the thing that, that we should be worrying about. What happened was when the Swiss National Bank had to come up with a solution to rescue Credit Suisse before there was a further run on the bank there. And remember, deposits were down at Credit Suisse 40% in 2022. So this has been the slowest of slow moving train wrecks for a really long time. The SNB came up with a very inelegant solution, and I'm sure it'll be in court for a really long time, of saying, okay, the cocos are zero, the equities, you guys at least get a little bit of a, a kiss on the cheek. Um, so now people who are long uh, these contingent convertible securities, this this uh, AT1 debt, are looking at it and saying, okay, do do I not do I not have any protection here? Am I going to really be below the equity guys if there's there is a problem at at, at DB or at some other entity? And, and don't forget, these AT1 securities, these contingent convertibles, they're a meaningful part of the capital structure of a lot of European banks. So in order to hedge your cocos, you go out and you buy CDS. It doesn't mean though that there's actually something going on within Deutsche Bank. They really were a victim of the inelegant solution that the Swiss National Bank came up with in a very short period of time. You know, you, you look at what happened, you've looked at what happened has happened to the banks, you know, that have gotten the sweetheart deals in the US. It's the same thing. Like UBS is sitting there it, it, taking the taking over uh, some of the good assets that they want from uh, Silicon Valley and, and, and from Signature. Um, it's the same thing for UBS. UBS got to dictate the terms here. Uh, and they ended up buying, arguably, they ended up buying Credit Suisse for a negative number. Uh, you know, a few billion dollars for the equity, but oh, don't worry about that, whatever it was, 13, 14 billion dollars uh, of cocoa liability. So just don't worry about that. So they bought it essentially for a negative number and they got the pieces that they want. Uh, so I think Deutsche Bank has a profitability problem. They sure as hell have a growth problem, but they probably don't have a liquidity problem. Now, if the CDS goes to a certain level and stays there, then it's just mechanical that some entities are going to say, well, no, when the CDS is X, we don't accept your counter. We can't accept your counterparty risk. It doesn't seem likely that it's going to go to that level. I think it's come off the boil here yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and Deutsche Bank traded better throughout the day on Friday, traded better yesterday. Uh, and let's see where we are today in real time. Stock is basically flat to down small. So I, I think that that, that crisis is, is probably behind us on, on the CDS and Deutsche Bank. Yeah, well, and I think we've kind of gotten a picture of how far in both the U.S. and Europe regulators will go to shore up deposits. Um, you had, you know, Olaf Scholz tell reporters at an EU summit that, Deutsche Bank had no reasons for concern. Uh, you also had, you know, Macron, and then you had, you know, ECB President Christine Lagarde talked about how resilient, you know, the euro area is right now with this banking. So, uh, I mean, you'd think that's got to alleviate some concerns, right? Just how aggressive regulators will be and governments in terms of bailing out these deposits. Yeah. Again, I, I think it's it, it it's not a solvency problem. It's a profitability problem. Yeah. Uh, what's left uh, are companies that are much more 
uh, have much stronger balance sheets uh, and far more reserves versus risk than they've had in, in past years. There's no lack of regulatory structure, I can promise you, around the European banks. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why their ROEs suck as much as they do. And it's one yeah. of the concerns that we have for the banking sector going forward. Well, regula- regulations are going to go higher. The regulations of your duration risk uh, are going to go higher. Uh, so you have to think that that's just going to be another thing that is going to weigh on the long-term profitability and long-term growth of the U.S. banks, and they end up looking more like these European dinosaurs that really have been just horrible investments for a long time. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Want to talk about the money market fund bubble? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I I think the money market thing is really interesting because I spent I I asked around a little bit yesterday to my friends who are in the banking sector, who've spent a lot of time in the banking sector. And I said, why does why does the flow to money markets slow? And remember, banks have depositors. You're paying depositors for the most part, pretty much close to nothing on your savings and your checking accounts. Maybe you're getting 50 bips or a percent on your savings and zero on your checking. So if if there's cash that you don't, and you get you get everyday liquidity on money markets, it's just you don't get it immediately when on, on new funds going in, but you still have liquidity in money markets. Uh, why would you not want to take money markets, which are just invested in T-bills, why would you not want, not want more safety and just the same amount of liquidity and a higher yield with putting money in money markets. So, you know, if you look at the charts back to what happened at the very beginning of the financial crisis, you saw money market go funds go a lot higher where they are now. So the question I'm posing to everybody is, so what makes this stop? Why won't you continue to get deposit outflow, not just to the large banks, but to money markets? And nobody really had a good answer. Well, higher deposit beta. Banks have to start paying more for savings and checking accounts, but that's not really how banks work. They need to borrow uh, that money cheaply. They're not going to make a lot of money borrowing money at four and a half percent and trying to lend long when the ten-year is sitting at three fifty. Uh, investing long or, or 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 lending long, especially as you're you're pulling in your horns on lending. So it just makes for an environment that suggests to me that this this banking crisis and one of the implications being money moving out of deposits into money markets means that banks have that much less will and interest in lending that has a direct correlation to bringing on a recession less lending ultimately also means if people can't get credit they default more defaults beget more defaults uh that's how you go into the spiral of a recession Anything we overlooked this week, Tim? What do you think? Uh, you know, the 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 saber rattling between the U.S. and China seems to be going in only one direction. Uh, so that's that continues to be a concern. That doesn't seem like uh, we're going to get any relief. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to watch where uh, mortgage rates go. You know, I've been impressed by how well housing is held up. Uh, housing is down, housing prices are down about 5% peak to trough, peak being in June, you're still like flat on a year over year basis. Activity is obviously terrible. But if spreads don't widen out too much with the move that you've had in the 10 year, 
maybe you do get another little bit of a lift uh, in housing. Home builder sentiment, which is terrible on an absolute basis, is up a little bit off the bottom. And I'd be interested to see if that continues. I, I, I still have to think that even if, if you get, you know, the 30-year down to, say, 6%, uh, 30-year mortgage down to 6%, you're still doubling where people were. So much of the country is still locked into mortgages below 4% and even below 3% that it still seems that you're going to have an issue uh, on liquidity. Um, but that's it. You know, my focus is really going to turn towards earnings here uh, over the next couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah, no, in regards to housing, I mean, Wall Street Journal came out with an article as a tale to housing markets. So a lot of the tremendous losses that have been happening in the West Coast have been offset with home values going up in the East Coast. Um, well, I mean, the economy only bifurcates more. With every recession and with, with, with every uh, strong cycle, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. I mean, in the million dollar in the luxury housing market away from California, where you just, you know, it's just been parabolic forever, um, things are still very strong. Um, whereas in the, in the lower end market, things have weakened quite a bit. There was also a great article in the Washington Post, I think it was yesterday, that really articulates how inflation has hurt poor people and, and uh, so much more then it hurts the wealthy. And one of the examples I always use is, is food at home uh, at the dollar store level, the inflation rate is over 15%. So if you live in a small town, you live in a food desert as they're called, and in a family dollar, a dollar general is your best option on or your closest option on food, you are, su you are suffering really, really high inflation. The, you know, the benefit that we've gotten here is gasoline prices, because, again, gasoline is a much bigger part of the budget for, you know, poor, more poor Americans. And you've gotten real relief there. If we see oil prices start to work their way up, uh, if China demand really picks up, and that's been kind of disappointing so far. But but oil prices, this you were talking about sentiment before, sentiment has gotten really negative. And positioning, speculate, speculator positioning in energy has gotten really negative. If you get a demand surprise out of Asia, you could see a quick move up on energy prices, and that would really not be helpful to where the Fed is trying to get to. Ultimately, the Fed, I think, probably, unless you start to see meaningful slowdown, post the regional bank crisis because of the tightening, I think the Fed still has to go again. The Fed is not going to stop with 6% plus wage growth and 6% plus headline inflation. Sounds good. Thanks uh, for your time today, Tim. And for our you know listeners and subscribers, thanks for your likes and subscribes and, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.